Hi, and welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist, and I'm the online editor at the Strad. How many people does it take to perform the Mendelssohn Octet? In the case of Marlon Broman, one. You might remember her pandemic-era video where she performed all eight parts of the finale, including that fiendish opening in the second cello part. Marlon spoke to me about her journey into multi-instrumentalism and the versatility and different perspectives that come from playing other instruments. Have a listen. Marlon, welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast today because we're going to be talking about multi-instrumentalism and versatility. So I'll just introduce you for listeners who might not know who you are, but I I feel like a lot of people have definitely seen your work in the last few years or so. So you're the concertmaster of the Swedish Radio Symphony, and you're also an artistic director, directing from the violin. But a lot of our listeners and our readers will know you from your very impressive and epic video performances of works such as the Mendelssohn Octet, where you played the final movement of that work, playing all parts. I can't really express enough how amazing I found that because I'm a cellist myself and I know that the opening of that last movement can strike fear into any cellist, almost to the point where you're thinking about it halfway through the third movement before it's (laughs) even happened. Um, Other videos that were featured are A Room of One's Own by Britta Bistrom and the Handel Halverson Pascalia with Rick Stotine, double bassist slash beatboxer and bassoonist, curiously. So really interesting to, you know, get your insights about multi-instrumentalism, um, playing lots of different instruments, because for a lot of classical musicians, we tend to focus on one thing. So first of all, can you tell me, when did you start to explore other instruments and go down this avenue? Well, I'm really excited to be here talking to you, first of all. And uh, well... The violin was at five years old. I started the Suzuki. Then I think at 13, we started to play a lot of chamber music, just sight reading. And I just remember this one session where they needed a violist. And I just got handed a viola and here you read the clef like this. And off I went, not very well. But I always loved the different sounds of the different instruments and maybe also what playing one instrument would give to the other instrument. So when I was 18, I invested in a small viola and uh, have played that uh, a lot in chamber music. I often go to festivals and play both. And I've actually had three um, concerti written for me where I swap halfway through. And if I do a recital, I make sure that I play one, one piece and and that was also, I loved practicing the viola. So at that time, uh, I was playing a lot of piano trios and I got quite tired of playing the same parts on the violin. So I would simply practice them on the viola. And it's just it, small details. I always thought you have to be more clever to play the viola. Um, if I would hand uh, the viola the same way as I did on the violin, it wouldn't respond. I kind of had to be... Uh, bit more relaxed um, and find other ways of, of getting the sound out of the instrument. So it was just interesting and I found that then when I played the violin I just felt so free. Did you feel then that when you went back to the violin that it was a tiny instrument and you had to adjust in that I way? I did. I'm quite a tiny person so in that sense it was never 
too tiny. But yes, I did. That things were easy. I, I didn't have to work as hard. Although saying work is hard, because if you work hard at viola, it won't sound. So you really just need to treat it properly and uh, sort of sink into the instrument. Getting lots of different perspectives in that way. You mentioned to me just before we started recording that you were keen to explore bass lines. Tell me a little bit about how you transfer your abilities playing violin and viola to playing cello. Because, I mean, I I do know of a lot of violinists who play viola and vice versa. Indeed, a lot of viola players start on violin. Mm. Um, But I feel like the leap from violin to cello is is huge, you know, especially technically. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about that transition. (laughs) It was actually a childhood dream to play uh, the cello. But when it came to choosing it as a different, different instrument I wanted to play the the cello as a second instrument and I was just they said no you have to learn the piano and that was probably why it's really good to have the piano but so it has been a dream to play the cello I always loved the sound I did tinker with it I bought a cello um, when I was at Guildhall and had a few lessons and it was great. I was had lessons with Selma Gogson, and I wanted to come and just play a little bit of Bach or something. And she really started from the beginning, like hugging the instrument and just feeling physically well with the instrument. Then the cello gathered dust for quite a, a while until my son started to play. This was six years ago. So I decided to practice with him. So I still do, actually. He's much better. There's some things that I find very difficult, like vibrato up in high positions and stuff. Um, <laughs> but but we play scales every day and do the basic work um, together. It's really, really fun. And just generally, that was maybe 10 years ago, I started to collect. I realized that in most Mozart quintets or any quintets, I'd played four of the five parts. And in Mendelssohn, I'd then played six of the seven parts. And this... This um, recurring Chamber Music sight reading uh, fest is something that happens every Easter, and I've gone since I was 13 years old. So one Easter, I thought, okay, I'm going to play the second cello uh, on the Mendelssohn Octet. So I did that, and then I was, you know, just about to um, sort of finish the, the all eight parts, and then Corona hit, so I couldn't. But we we managed, you know, Sweden. We didn't. It wasn't so rigorous, so we could still meet. So we, I did play the first cello part of, of the Mendelssohn, but then there was a friend of mine who said, "I think you should record this," and that was the idea for the video. Yeah. And it was a, certainly a very impressive video. I remember when that came out, and it received so much um, positive reception online. Also showing what you could do digitally um, during that time when we weren't able to play with each other. Tell me a little bit about the challenges of recording all those separate pieces, but also making it look like you were one cohesive ensemble. I mean, at one point you even high-fived yourself. Yeah, is that right? yeah. It, it was great. <laughs> I guess the, the Swedish radio, we still went on. We, we I think, only missed two weeks out of the, the whole corona years so there were lots of changes and nothing was the same but we kept on going but it also meant that we upped our game with everything with streaming as did everyone else of course but I happened to see a a video online with someone singing um, seven parts in a church and then he actually had an instruction video for how he'd done it so I just sent it to my colleagues at the radio and say I'd really love to do this 
And then for a few months, I practiced all the eight parts with a metronome. I just set, like, this is going to be the tempo. And I practiced all the parts. There's a cadenza at one point for the first violins. And I just had to practice how to add a beat and then still sort of get in tempo when everyone else came in. So I'd done that quite a while. A little interesting thing about that, of course, my cello skills, I have two amateur groups and I love playing the cello and I practice every day, but I don't do it professionally. But it was interesting having the, the just the little difference in how the instrument spoke meant that when I listened back to all eight parts, the cellists were a little bit slow. Of course, my technique as well. But it was just interesting also to know that how much you'd have to drive from the, from the, from the bass line and how much I had to relax being um, the upper violins and the whole thing. Yes, I mean, in terms of strategy, physical strategy, going from the violin to cello, you're having to use your body in such a different way to really get the sound, especially in that opening mm. of that finale, you know, lower strings, really having to dig at that opening um, motif. You know, what sort of strategies did you have in place for that? Well, maybe that's what I've loved. The feeling that when I practiced the violin, at some point intonation was doing something 10,000 times. You know, that was the only way of really getting your uh, intonation in place. And then when I started to play the viola, I did the same thing, but I didn't have to do it 10,000 times. It was there if I allowed my body to... Well, let's let's take as an example, you know, when little kids take up a glass of milk, they sort of spill it all over. But very soon we realize we can, we see an object and we only use the force and we arrange our hands in a way. So we lift it up perfectly. Everything we lift up, we lift up perfectly. And so I think the same of instruments. You know, I have a viola. After you know, a few seconds, my, my body can rearrange itself for the viola. Add to that nerves, I found that in concerts, I, it really helps that you have the experience, of course. But so for cello, in a way, I just adopted the same kind of thing. I, I do exercises every day, but in the end, it's about letting your body adapt to the instrument and not the opposite. Um, and, and actually, for the first, I learned a lot. The first video was the Mendelssohn, and there we had not a single, you know, we didn't have a special session for the for the sound. So that was very much picture and sound at the same time, which was quite, quite tough, you know, getting it right. And we only, well, we had a day, day to fix it. But uh, so that was interesting. And also I was so aware that no one had seen me play the cello. So I was very self-conscious and <laughs> wanted desperately for it to look okay. <laughs> Oh, I think it was it was great. I mean, like I'm I'm here just getting all these tips from you for the next time I ever play that piece because it is a challenge and I know I know it well definitely. Mm. Just to sort of you know sum up all of these experiences and and I think it's quite inspirational for a lot of string players to hear this because I I personally I work in musical theatre and mm. I work with a lot of wind players where the default is to play two three sometimes four instruments in the pit. Mm. You know they'll be trebling, flute clarinet saxophone and that's quite normal but as string players we don't really do that so much and indeed I think it's something that's increasing now especially in music education and unfortunately with cuts happening around the place a lot of string players are finding themselves having to teach instruments that they don't necessarily play yes that's right what do you think would be the biggest positive to glean from exploring other instruments that people can 
potentially take inspiration to, you know, maybe learn something new within the string family? Well, someone said that the hardest thing you can learn is to how to walk and talk. The, the combination of muscles that it needs a balance and everything that the body needs to do for these is just unbelievable. So playing an instrument is not difficult. I, I wish that was true, of course, <laughs> in, in the sense that, you know, we are built to learn how to walk and to talk. But in some ways it is, the, uh, the instruments don't sound without us. So it's definitely the body creating the sound. And I think the instruments tell us a lot about how to arrange it as well. Um, I've, I've actually done a lot of ergonomics. Uh, my, my second teacher um, started an ergonomic clinic. So I've been sort of involved with that since I was 15. And that really helps as well, thinking of um, just uh, not making it difficult for yourself, trying as much as possible to find easy way, natural way to do things. I think that's really important. What you said earlier about how making sure that it's it's not the instrument sort of dictating what you do mm. and finding this physical awareness, would you say, to help you sort of rewire your brain? It is a rewiring. For example, um, I mean, the way you stretch on a violin and viola is completely different for a cello. So, for example, I have tiny hands and I kept on thinking, oh, I can't do this, you know. But somehow if, if, I, if I allowed it to go a little bit on the, um, on the side rather than stretching out and also just relaxing into it, um, I found that I could do most things. I have lots, lots to learn, but, but uh, yeah, you can sort of figure stuff out. My dad was, uh, is, you know, a scientist, my brother as well. And th so there was always a, a form of, you know, when I was little, well, logically, you should pull the bow in this direction. And, you know, he would read books about acoustic and stuff. So I think the whole approach was always to sort of use, use your knowledge and use your brain in order to figure things out and nothing was impossible. Yeah, that's very well said. It's it's about applying your knowledge and just finding what works. And I mean, you know, there's that famous yoga instructor on YouTube called uh, Yoga with Adrian, And her mantra is find what feels good. And in a way, we need to find what feels good with whatever instrument we choose to play. Definitely. It's really, really fascinating hearing your insights about playing all sorts of um, different instruments. So when can we expect your first solo cello recital? <laughs> well, uh, no. Um, I, I, right now I'm just... <laughs> or duo recital <laughs> yeah. with, your, with your son. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's more it. Second cello for something. But yeah, I do just immensely enjoy um, playing with amateurs. I've always loved that. And uh, I'm playing right now with two German doctors and, and my daughter was playing uh, as well in the quartet. And, you know, what should we play? Well, I like Death and the Maiden. Okay, then. <laughs> and then we just sort of had this mountain in front of us. But it just, it really helps. And, and, and other things um, with the directing, uh, music is led by the bass. I, I love Baroque and I love that philosophy. Um, so for me, always hearing the bass, being able to also know what I'd like with the bass part. Um, I also take uh, Baroque cello lessons and, and, and to, to, to be able to say, no, we're phrasing here or, or just uh, knowing harmony is always from the bass. So I'm, I'm just really grateful for this new world that's opened up. New perspectives. That's what I like about playing the cello as well. People don't realize necessarily, but you have a lot of power over an ensemble. You are the <laughs> true leaders. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Marlon, thank you so much. It's been a it's been a joy to speak with you today and hopefully your words have inspired lots of string players to explore other instruments. Absolutely. Yeah, just have fun. 
That was Marlon Broman. Do you play multiple stringed instruments? Share your journey or story with us. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or send us an email at thestrad at thestrad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out thestrad.com where you'll find the latest news, articles, and reviews on all things to do with string playing. If you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. We've got 50% off an online subscription for students, and if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days. Start reading right away, no strings attached. If you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or a rating. It will help other people discover this podcast. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.